what I'm working on involves uh, food webs. And so I'm really interested in actually like the structure of who is eating who within an aquatic system. So if you think of a lake, you often have these like small zooplankton. They're feeding tiny little microscopic algae. Those zooplankton are being eaten by smaller or medium-sized fish. And then those fish are being eaten by bigger fish. And so that's what we kind of call a food web. And there's this interconnectivity. And also in there, you have these other sort of like insect larvae and things swimming around or in the sediment. This all forms a food web. But a lot of our understanding so far of how microplastics might... Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Garth Coverington, PhD. He's a postdoctoral fellow for the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at University of Toronto. I'm going to talk about microplastics and their interaction with uh, food webs around lakes and other bodies of water. So Garth, thank you so much for coming. Hey, yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Okay, start out. Um, tell me a bit about your background and how you got into studying microplastics and food webs. Yeah, so I grew up on the west coast of Canada in British Columbia, in Vancouver. I, I started out by studying uh, animal biology, actually, during my undergraduate degree. I got really interested in how things that humans are doing might be affecting animals, especially actually coastal marine animals, and did some research there. I ended up taking some time off to kind of figure out, you know, where I'd want to go after my bachelor degree. And in that process came across the research surrounding microplastics and the issue around plastic in the ocean. And this was, this would have been in, you know, 2013, 2014. So still very early days kind of in that field. There wasn't so much published work yet, and it was still very much an emerging topic. And I got really interested and ended up going into graduate school, studying microplastics and how they might be distributed or affecting um, specifically shellfish aquaculture on the west coast of British Columbia. And so I was doing my, I ended up doing finishing a PhD at the University of Victoria. I did some more work surrounding microplastics and food webs there. That led me to my current work now looking at microplastics, uh, mostly in freshwater right now and how they might. Okay. So freshwater, is it are you looking at various lakes or are you looking at rivers or where is your research focused? The work I'm involved with right now, we are pretty large projects. So it's headed by my advisor, Dr. Chelsea Rockman, who's a professor here at the University of Toronto. And so she is heading up along with a lot of other researchers from various institutions and government and other academic institutions in Canada and the US. And they are, we have this large collaborative project and it's called the Pelastic Project, so P-E-L-A-S-D-I-C, uh, and the E-L-A in that part stands for Experimental Lake Theory. And so in Canada, we have this research institute, which is part of the Institute for uh, Sustainable Development, uh, International Institute for Sustainable Development, and they have a research area called the Experimental Lakes Area. And in this area, there are 
a number of these large natural lakes where we're able to do various experiments. And so we are working specifically on one lake there doing various experiments with microplastics. So both involving uh, smaller systems within the lake that we build, as well as the entire lake itself to look at how microplastics might affect various elements of the ecosystem from, you know, the zooplankton in the lake to nearshore insects and things and all the way up to fish and birds that are surrounding. Just kind of really looking at a kind of ecosystem of what microplastics might be doing. All right. So what, what does that mean? What size microplastics are you taking fish out of, you know, a lake and biopsying them? What are you doing specifically? So my work specifically, what I'm working on involves uh, food webs. And so I'm really interested in actually like the structure of who is eating who within in aquatic system. So if you think of a lake, you often have these like small zooplankton, they're feeding tiny little microscopic algae. And those zooplankton are being eaten by smaller or medium-sized fish, and then those fish are being eaten by bigger fish. And so that's what we kind of call a food web, and there's this interconnectivity. And also in there, you have these other sort of like insect larvae and things swimming around or in the sediment. This all forms a food web. But a lot of our understanding so far of how microplastics might be toxic or how they might affect animals is very limited to exposing animals in the lab to concentrations of, you know, a single type or size of microplastics, then looking at, okay, well, how does this affect, you know, how much, how long it takes them to die, reduce, how much do they reduce, how fast do they grow, those sort of things. So it's this kind of single organism approach. And I'm really interested in, okay, but what happens if an entire food web is exposed to microplastics and they are themselves maybe ingesting or interacting with these tiny particles or also like being affected by how those particles are affecting other, you know, species within their food web. So in this case, we're actually using three types of plastic polymer polymers. So this is polyethylene terephthalate, kind of like you would see in water bottles. We have polystyrene. So, um, so the type we're using is like you might see in those red solo cups, like maybe you play, might use to play beer pong or something. And then the uh, last one is polyethylene and the type of polyethylene we're using is actually would be used to make like a shell of a kayak. So these sort of three very commonly produced and used polymers. And we are actually putting some of them both into our small systems and into the lake, adding them in as simulating essentially what would happen if this lake was next to a sewage pipe in a, in a city based on, you know, concentrations that other people have found. And then we're looking at, okay, now we know kind of what the system was like. What happens if you basically install almost Imagine installing, suddenly this lake is now next to an urban kind of pollution area. Now what happens to these food webs? And so I'm really curious about, you know, what happens to these connections in the food webs as well as to the animals uh, themselves. And then there are other people looking at other aspects within that as well. Uh, again, how are you determining microplastics are affecting anything? Are you doing biopsies? Are you looking at what's in the water? What's your mechanism of analysis? Right. I see. Yeah. So for me, there are a number of people looking at, say, for example, gene expression in fish. We can look at like just body size, for example, or population numbers. And but also, yes, biopsying fish to look at, okay, where do microplastics go? Do they accumulate in the liver? Do they accumulate in the digestive tract or in the gills? Um, but then my work actually, because it's more about the food web, I'm using techniques such as uh, stable isotopes analysis. So using carbon and nitrogen stable isotopes, we can track uh, we can actually kind of model the food web and figure out who's eating who based on how these ratios of these certain carbon and nitrogen isotopes change between animals and over time. And then also these essential nutrients called fatty acids. 
And so the way that, so different animals have different levels of them and they tend to accumulate in the food web. And so a lot of fish require, um, need to consume certain food in order to get these levels of, you might actually know some of them, for example, if you ever taken like fish oil supplements. So there's what's called DHA and EPA. These are essential nutrients uh, for humans as well. And so a lot of these fish um, can only synthesize them to a certain amount. And so they need to consume certain high quality food items to get them. So I'm also interested in whether microplastics might, you know, change the abundances or the amount of fatty acids present in these like animals at the bottom of food webs. And if that has effect on other animals. So I'm kind of, I'm measuring both these fatty acids and these stable isotopes across the food web and relating that to, you know, the structure of that overall food web to, to help explain, okay, if there are shifts in the food web, can we explain? Well, how, how do you know that microplastics is causing changes in the uh, nutrient creation or expression in any animal? It seems like a very difficult thing to establish. Yeah. So, I mean, you can, uh, well, we have these, like, we call them mesocosms. We have these smaller experimental systems where we add microplastics in. And in this case, we just have one species of fish and we can characterize what they're eating and see how many microplastics they're consuming and relate it to that, those levels of say fatty acids. But we also have other researchers looking at say gene expression. So you can also look at um, the amount of fatty acids and synthesis, for example, going on in a fish. And so we can relate it in these regards. But yeah, it is also like there are elements of it that are more correlational and looking for these things. But it's also about, you know, if there are, is a structural change. Uh, this is actually, so there's a type of experimental design called the B, a BACI, so a before after control impact. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. And so by having two lakes, we can measure, we can look at both of these lakes and we monitor them over time before anything's done to either of them. And then we can monitor them as plastic is added to one lake and compare it to a lake where nothing is happening, basically. And so this is very commonly done in, say, development or in um, environmental consulting where they're trying to figure out what happens, you know, before or after you... Uh, say, build a new, like a mine or something. Well, such tremendous variability of microplastics, the bioavailability of them. The creature you're studying is on the bottom, is it in the middle, is it on the top of the water column? You know, what's the seasoning? Yeah, what's the microplastics load? How does that change? Again, what's adjustable? What gets stuck? What doesn't? It just seems like incredibly convoluted. Yeah, I mean, and that's why it's such a massive project. So we have a lot of different researchers involved. This and so there are people looking at all these different elements, people looking at the zooplankton and how much microplastic they might consume and potential effects on their populations. You know, we have people looking at these benthic aquatic invertebrates like insect larvae. We have people looking at amphibians, frogs, and turtles that might be nearby and effects potentially on their larval stages as well. And so, yeah, it's like really integrating all these things. And then of course, also, yeah, you can relate it to laboratory studies that, that people on our team or 
other folks are doing and and like fill in these gaps. But I mean, of course, you're right. Like it's such a complex system. You can never understand exactly what is going on, but you you do have to still look at different aspects of it and and figure out, you know, is there even an impact? Right? And so like, we don't even necessarily know. All we have right now is these kind of laboratory studies. And so just knowing like, how does it actually translate into the field is like one of the main purposes of this entire endeavor. Okay. So what's, what's been discovered so far? What is the specific focus of your particular research that, what do you hope to elucidate? Yeah. So, I mean, we don't, we don't quite know yet. Like the experiment is still very much underway. It's, it's a long-term uh, experiment, but I can say based, so based on my past work. So I did work in my PhD, for example, looking at the distribution of microplastics in marine food webs and figuring out, okay, looking at the digestive tracts of different fish and invertebrates living on coastal British Columbia, as we go up through tropic levels. So as you go to like animals higher in the food chain, you know, are there more microplastics in their guts? And the answer to that seemed to be no. And this is also confirmed by a lot of other studies, either directly investigating it or reviewing other people's work and putting it together. And so it seems like the microplastics aren't so much accumulating and then increasing as you go up through trophic levels. And so this leads to my hypotheses surrounding, okay, well, if that's the case, then maybe the animals more at risk from microplastics and ingesting microplastics are going to be those that are smaller, where those small particles really match up with the food they're eating and have a higher chance on their digestive tract or replace their natural food items. And so then in that case, what we might expect is these kind of like larger food impacts or impacts to higher and bigger animals, say bigger fish, might be actually more of these like indirect effects. So because of their prey are being affected, maybe then those they would see an effect, but it's more through the effect to something that they're eating. So like the quality of their food, for example, is decreased or there's less food available. That's kind of my main hypothesis right now and what we'll be able to investigate with this, but it is still very much progress. Well, in terms of food availability and type of food, I mean, seasonality would play an enormous role. I would think in a lake, the lab would be very different. What do you observe in the seasonality that's food available? Yeah. I mean, so for example, in lakes, so in these temperate lakes, so these are in Northwestern Ontario, they ice over for, you know, a good chunk of the year. So for the whole winter, they're going to be covered in ice, in which case the fish, for example, are still going to be eating to some extent, but, but to a lesser extent, they tend to go in a more kind of dormant state. So of course, yes, they may are potentially going to be exposed to less during those times. And also I imagine there's probably less mixing of those microplastics in that system. So yeah, you would kind of... Well, also like, in the winter, if they're less metabolically active too, what does that do? So like if I'm a fish and I eat a micro, you know, a bunch of microplastics in the the summer and the fall now it's winter and i'm semi-hybridating i'm really like not metabolically active so i'm not consuming much but now let's say all the plastics i consumed are sitting inside me and gunking me up for months on end until spring comes what does that do yes my, my epigenetics are changing throughout the winter i'm adapting to my environment again there's a whole host of changes in me physiologically as a fish how does that correlate with my microplastics exposure Sure. I mean, and that's a great question that I don't think we yet have an answer to or anyone really has an answer to because that's a hard, that would be a very difficult thing to study, but it's like something we can maybe not get at that exactly, but we can definitely look like, you know, we can do sampling of fish, say, you know, at the end of a season and then at the start of the season and, and get the sense of like, okay, you know, are there still, what, what happened to these plastic over time, especially? 
And because we're sampling in all these different matrices and we will have like kind of winter sampling as well, looking at, you know, maybe what's in the ice and different parts of the lake. As you go, obviously it's much higher. You can't sample that much in the winter because everything is covered over. Um, but we can get an idea of seasonally, like how plastic are moving around. And we do know, for example, like let's say, you know, going away from the lake first, for example, like let's say you are in a river, like an urban river or near to like an urban estuary or something. We know that there's often these like huge pulse events. And so my supervisor, Chelsea Rockman, studies this a lot and has grad students working on this, where like after a big rainfall event or a storm, you're going to see like this spike in plastic uh, debris and microplastics going down the river. So also animals, yeah, you're right, are going to often be exposed to this, like actually exposed to these pulses of pollution, um, depending on where they are in the seasonality. But yeah, I mean, I think it's an open question. Like this is still, we have a lot more to do in terms of understanding the specific long-term impacts of microplastics. And I'll also add that it's really dependent, like microplastics are not monolithic. So you have like, you know, multiple sizes and polymers and shapes, and each of those elements affects their toxicity and how, whether they might accumulate or which issues they might translocate to. And we also don't even have very good methods for understand for investigating particles less than uh, like a few microns that like to be able to get those counts or figure out where they go in tissues. That's a, a work in progress. And like scientists don't even have a good handle on that. We don't even know whether the small microplastics are accumulating in tissues like we haven't yet been able to figure that out so it is very like you know there's a lot more to be done in that area yeah but based on like air pollution studies it seems like the sweet spot at least for inhaling which i know doesn't happen in a in a lake um it's about one micron is a troublesome particle size what sure. about ingesting has anyone identified again is it a similar particle size that tends to get lodged in tissues you know every yeah, creature's sure. physiology is different but yet there are a lot of elements that are the same so is there a sweet spot number that you believe if you could view the microplastics, you would see a lot more? Yeah, totally. So I think at least in in mammals, I know work has kind of demonstrated in the past that, you know, something around like 130 microns is maybe an upper limit, we would think, for, say, translocating out of the digestive tract into certain animal tissues just due to like the way lining of the gut works. But actually, there's also been work from our lab showing much larger particles even up to you know several hundred microns showing up in the organs of fish like whether it's in their muscle tissue or in livers and things like that and we still have no handle on how that so like we can't even see larger particles moving into other organs and we still don't know why and there are you know some theories if maybe it has to do with like damaging say for example the lining of the intestine because these particles are abrasive and then maybe that allows for almost like the intestine to become more leaky or like porous and these larger particles can start getting in. So I would say that work, especially in a field context, because yeah, there's been lab studies and these are logistically hard to do, you know, like trying to raise fish for longer than, you know, a few weeks or months is it, when you're having to deal with them every day is extremely, I would say being challenging. So not that many people do these like long-term studies, even in the lab, in the lab. Yeah. Again, that's something we, you know, now that we know microplastics have this potential to cause harm, it's like, now we really need to dive more into those like you were saying specifics of like hey, where is this going for how long what are like what's the really like the size thing and that is all you know this this field is like massively taken off in the last 10 years or something and i think it's still we're still like at that kind of like exponential growth phase where we're like developing all these questions and exploring them what about from a bioaccumulation standpoint are you looking at you know primary consumers plankton plants etc are you looking at fish that eat the plants or you're looking at maybe if they exist in the lake larger fish that eat other fish or fish that eat you know smaller creatures 
And is there a bioaccumulation of microplastics observed? I mean, that's one of the things we're going to be looking into for sure. I would say, based on the literature in my own past work, particles over about 100 microns are very unlikely to bioaccumulate or, say, then increase up the food web. Um, just because, like, it seems like they're mostly, when they're ingested, they're mostly just going to be passed out through the, the rear end, basically. Like, the animal's going to just pass those particles. They're not really going to accumulate that much or pass up through the trophic levels. Uh, the jury is more out for those smaller than 100 micron particles. But even then, I think some modeling and, and kind of polymerity studies have shown that maybe there's, like, low potential for that. So I would say, you know, we need to figure out, especially for, like, the really small, like, nano below a micron is a whole other field it's like nanoplastics and it's still you know that is a still that field is still very like you're a decade even behind where microplastics is right now it's just because it's so hard to study um but like that is where you know i think we're gonna have to look more into say the accumulation question but i would say you know like above 100 the risk of that seems low but we will definitely be but again it's not just a physical passing through the animal you know, like, uh, I don't know, if I eat a piece of plastic, there's a, a lot of plasticizers and colorants, all kinds of stuff in there, plus the, you know, the polymer backbone. So if I eat a big piece, there's certainly a ton more material that I could ingest. You know, it goes to my stomach acid, all the other digestive enzymes and stuff. It could strip off some of these chemicals, and therefore I could absorb them. So the whole monolithic piece may pass through me. But because, again, there's just so much more material, maybe that poisons me by the stripping off of these other compounds and something smaller may get stuck but it has a lot less material with which to poison just the trade-off yeah and so then now you're talking about the differences between like a physical particle effect and a chemical effect so so yeah plastics can contain residual monomers from when they're produced as polymers they can contain additive chemicals uh like you know plasticizers and uv uh uv antioxidants and all these sort of things uh, they can also then absorb other contaminants from the environment, at least in terms of absorption, like, you know, accumulating these other chemicals from the environment. A lot of studies have shown that that is probably a pretty minimal source of risk for humans or animals, just because those chemicals are already so prevalent in the environment that we're going to get them. Animals get them, we get them through all of our other food just as much, if not more, than we might from a microplastic particle. In terms of those additives, like, that is actually a component of our work as well. So, our, our plastics do have some, like a minimal number, but a, a few additives on them. And we are hoping to be able to look at in terms of that kind of transfer and accumulation question. But yeah, there is yet to be conclusive evidence that is, you know, that those microplastics actually increase risk to animals or humans just because those chemicals tend to be so prevalent in so many things that we are exposed by like a huge number of roots to them. So it's like, difficult to study or piece out how much of a role microplastics play. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Do you study any of the, uh, you know, I don't know if there's rivers that feed the lakes that you study or the lakes you study empty into other rivers, but is your research, is there plenty enough to do just in the lake environment or do you deal with rivers and flowing water? Yeah, so part of the reason we're working in our system is because it isn't as connected and so we can do a more isolated experiment without putting other ecosystems at risk. I'd like there is an outflow that connects to another lake, for example, but there is, you know, we have a lot of plans in place to minimize any sort of plastic escaping our, our specific experiment. But there are, you know, for example, like our group, the Rockman Lab here, there's grad students working on more river questions. So like we have two big rivers, like the Humber and the Don Rivers here in Toronto. 
And we have students here that are looking at microplastic concentrations there and doing various kinds of exposure studies. Like, for example, say with like insect larvae that might live in the sediment. And I can't necessarily speak to the results from that because a lot of it's like kind of progress and I don't necessarily know, but I would say I don't specifically, but there are, you know, other people like in our lab. Okay. What do you think is going to be possible for you to figure out over the next couple of years with the, with the research you're working on? What are like some of the big questions that you think will be useful? Yeah. I mean, one of the big ones that hasn't been answered is just, you know, if if we literally, you know, because we can look at microplastic concentrations in nature all over the world and we can say, okay, these concentrations that we see based on lab studies potentially have the, you know, might cause harm to animals. But we don't really have any idea. And this has been the case for a lot of other things in the past. Um we don't know what they're doing in nature. Like, okay, is this actually having an impact or are animals re- or, and systems resilient enough that they could just uh, like tolerate them? So for example, the experimental lakes area gained a lot of fame originally in like the sixties for studying acid rain. So there's all this kind of debate around, okay, well, like, yes, there's like the rain is more acidic due to pollution from factories and things like that. But okay, is that really impacting the environment? You know, there's all these other things going on. How do you prove it? And then there are researchers who were like, well, if we literally simulate acid rain in this one lake, the entire like aquatic food web collapses. And that was irrefutable evidence that, okay, there's like a real environmental impact and we really need to act. And so this has a potential where microplastics tend to co-occur with like a gazillion other things, right? Like, so most of them, a lot of them come from like sewage pipes or stormwater. And in those systems, there's already, there's like so many other pollutants you know, all of the road runoff pollutants coming out of car tires and and uh, out of our washing machines and our dishwashers and all this stuff, right? There's just like a huge, huge mix. It'd be so hard to, to isolate, okay, like what is these actual the microplastics in this? And so in this way, we can like really isolate, okay, like when you look at a larger level, you know, a more ecosystem level in the field, is there an actual impact of microplastics themselves? And and hopefully, like, if we show that, that's going to generate, I think, a lot of concern and hopefully more action globally. And if we don't, well, okay, maybe it means maybe we don't know as much as we think. Well, what kind of equipment is used to observe microplastics? You said it sounds like you can't go below, what, 5, 10 microns? So what, what kind of equipment are used and which kind of equipment would be necessary to look at the one micron or submicron level? Yeah. So in our, our lab, at least, we use three different methods. So we have... For those slightly larger particles, so down to a few microns, we can use either micro FTIR spectroscopy or Raman spectroscopy. And both of those use different light wavelengths of light, essentially, and how they interact with, you know, prop- chemical properties of the materials to then compare it to like a library. And it's it's like a forensic technique. You can figure out, okay, what type of polymer is this? And so we use that a lot for all of our environmental samples and they're super handy. And then we also have some folks in our lab looking at for the smaller particles, you can actually say, take a sample and burn it at really high temperatures. And so in this, it's called a pyrolysis gas chromatography mass spectrometer. And you can burn it an entire sample and then look at the degradation products and figure out, okay, these ones are linked to say polyethylene or polypropylene or something and get an idea of the mass concentration of those that were in your sample. So in that way, if you say digest like an animal tissue, you filter out everything over a micron, you run it through your system, you can get an idea of the mass of like submicron plastic that was present in that tissue. You'll have no idea what that means in terms of like polymer or particle count or things like that. So that that is the method that folks have been using 
in our lab for the smaller stuff, but it's still like you can't get at the actual kind of vertical number concentrations or the sizes of them. So for those, you know, there I have seen people using various techniques, but they usually can't characterize. They either, it, it seems like often you can only figure out what the polymers were in like the mass, or you can figure out particles, but not what the particles are. It's very, I've yet to see a good technique that really, you know, answer everything we're interested in for the smaller particles. And you were saying nanoplastics, you think maybe a decade or more away in order to be able to, to look at them? Yeah. I mean, I think they're being looked at now. They're starting to be with these like pyrolysis and these mass spectrometry techniques. It's just, yeah, there are, and there are some exposure studies, but because, you know, it is, it's a very technical, still a technical expertise to characterize these. And there's a lot of challenges Like not all polymers can be as easily looked at and people are just starting to look at them over the last years even. So uh, we don't even really know how much are in, it's kind of like in the last 10, 15 years, people just started finding microplastics and then they really started like, you know, looking at all these different sediment and water samples and animals from all over the world. And over time that has led us to know, okay, like this is, we know they're, they're out there and this is the range and, and what they might end up. And we're just like still in such early days with the nanoplastics. We need to go through that phase. Okay, how much are they actually in the environment and where? How do they move around? And before we can really even be like, okay, and then what are the actual kind of risk to animals? Because we just don't even know where they are, how much they are right now. All right, very good. Uh, Garth, so what's the best place for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Yeah, you can just Google me. I'm Garth, D-A-R-E-H, O-V-E-R-N-T-O-N. I'm on Twitter and P. Okay, well, very good. Garth, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.